Hello and welcome to Season 2, Episode 13 of the Physician Assistant Exam Review Podcast. In today's episode, we're going to finish up OBGYN. My name is Brian Wallace. I'm your host and creator here at physicianassistantexamreview.com. And welcome aboard. To those of you who are just finding the, the show, you definitely go ahead and check out the website, www.physicianassistantexamreview.com. Uh, all of the notes are posted over there for you to see. All the podcasts, especially the older ones. I've been getting some emails lately that the older podcasts are dropping out of the feed in iTunes. Well, they tend to do that. I think the feed holds about 100 shows. So anything beyond that, uh, and we're well into well over a hundred at this point. So the older shows are going to start dropping out. You can absolutely get them on the website, no problem there. Uh, download them however you like, but you will not be able to pull them into directly into your uh, podcast app of choice. So, uh, but you can definitely go check them out on the website. Uh, like I said, this week we're going to be finishing up OBGYN. I didn't realize it kind of snuck up on me quickly. The wrapping up this section, I do have some things I'm putting together, some review materials on OB. So. If you're interested in that, make sure you get on the email list. You can do that at the website. It's super easy. Um, but get on that, and that way, as soon as that material is available, I can let you know about it, and you can be aware of it. Uh, and that, that'll be coming out hopefully in about two weeks, maybe a month after I finish up, put all the notes together, uh, and you'll get to see exactly what I'm talking about and what that is. So like I said, if you're on the email list, you'll have no problem finding out about it. Definitely go and check that out. Anyway, let's go ahead and jump right in and get started this week and wrap up our discussions of OBGYN. All right, our questions are going to begin with, uh, as always, our priming questions going to be the things I want you to take some time, think about, answer them to the best of your knowledge. Even if you're not sure, even if you haven't done this in a long time, take a minute, think them through. That action, that priming action will help you to retain the stuff that we're covering today. So let's get started. Give one major risk factor, uh, I'm sorry, give one major risk of using oral contraception. One major risk of using oral contraception. deep vein thrombosis, DVTs. What medication helps increase ovulation? We talked about this previously. What medication helps increase ovulation? Clomiphene. A patient describes multiple tender breast masses that change with her cycle. What's the most likely diagnosis? Multiple tender breast masses that change with her cycle. What's the most likely diagnosis? Fibrocystic disease. We'll get into that shortly. At what age are mammograms used to begin screening for breast cancer? At what age, typically, are mammograms recommended to begin screening for breast cancer in a patient with average risk factors? 45 years old. And our last one's going to be, what is the most common organism cultured in mastitis? The most common organism cultured in mastitis. And it's Staph aureus. Okay, so first we're going to start off with contraception. Then we're going to go through infertility today. We're going to move into breast disorders, breast issues. So things like fibrocystic disease, breast cancer, uh, mastitis. And that'll round out OBGYN for us. So for contraceptive methods, let's go ahead and get started. The basal body temperature method, uh, there's a slight drop in temperature, which occurs 24 to 36 hours after ovulation, secondary to progesterone. Uh, body temperature then rises about 0.5 degrees Fahrenheit until the end of the cycle, so you can time when you're ovulating. People do this to try and get pregnant. You can also do it to try to avoid getting pre- pregnant. 
You can evaluate the mucus, the cervical mucus. It'll resemble egg whites when the patient is most fertile. So obviously you can use that to avoid getting pregnant as well. You can use the calendar method, which is just timing out your cycle and figuring out where you're, when you ovulate and avoiding the days around your ovulation. And if you use all three of those, then you do, have, you do greatly decrease your risk of getting pregnant. Although nobody's going to recommend you use those as contraceptive methods if you 100% are trying to avoid having children. Oral contraceptives, OCPs, perfect um, use would result in a 0.3% failure rate, but typical failure rate is more like 8%. This is a synthetic steroid similar to estrogen and progestins, which are used to suppress ovulation. Combination pills are typically started either the first day of the menstrual cycle or the first Sunday after the menstrual cycle begins, and that's done just so the patient can remember when to take the pills. If a pill's been missed, then two pills should be taken and a backup method used for, used for the next seven days. If a missed pill was preceded by intercourse at any point during the previous five days, then the patient should consider, if they want to, uh, emergency contraception. Pills should be restarted and a backup method used uh, until the end of the month. Mini pills are progesterone only and are not as effective as combination pills, but have slightly different side effect profiles we're not going to jump into today. There are some other issues with contraception, over-the-counter, contra not over-the-counter, oral contraception. Uh, let's talk about a couple of those. Um, some of the benefits, improvement of benign breast disease. So if you're having pain with your cycle, this might help. Same thing with pelvic pain. If you have endometriosis or something along those lines that is reactive to your cycle, using uh, oral contraception may be helpful here. Decreased anemia. So if you have a lot of bleeding, menorrhagia, that type of thing, oral contraception may improve those situations. Improve dysmenorrhea, acne, and hirsutism. Decrease in development of fibroids and decrease risk of endometrial cancer and ovarian cysts. Disadvantage of, OC of OCPs, increased risk of thromboembolic events, especially in smokers. So DVTs, the risk goes up. PEs, the risk goes up. Smoking is a, it definitely makes this combined uh, the risk when you combine OCPs and smoking, it, it definitely has a dramatic increase. So something to pay attention to. Increase, uh, they also have an increased risk of breast cancer down the road. Another contraceptive method would be intrauterine devices, so IUDs. They have a less than 1% failure rate. There is some concern about uterine perforation when you put the, the IUD in. And they can migrate or they can be misplaced. These numbers are really, really low, but certainly a concern. They do have an increased risk of ectopic pregnancy and of pelvic infection. But again, they work fantastic for people, uh, work really well as far as working as contraception. They also have intramuscular injections of progesterone or combination of estrogen and progesterone. So the Depo-Provera shot, um, they make 60, I'm sorry, 30 and 90 day formulations. And there's a 0.3% failure rate with these. So very, very effective. The downside is fertility returned within about 18 months of discontinuing the medication, so it lasts a long time. This is kind of a long-term decision, but they work really well. You don't have to remember to take it. They make transdermal patches. They make hormone-impregnated vaginal rings and hormone-releasing rod implants. So there's all kinds of different contraceptive methods. On the other side of the coin, we were talking about infertility, patients who are trying to get pregnant and cannot Infertility is the inability to conceive after one year of sexual activity without the use of contraception. Obviously, that time frame may be condensed depending on the patient's age. As we have older uh, people getting married, uh, the, the average age of, of marriage and starting to have children is getting later and later. We start to shrink down this time frame to maybe six months. 
Um, possible causes in a female would be problems with ovulation, cervical issues like stenosis, um, an infection like chlamydia, think DIC, where you get scarring uh, inside, so scarring of the tubes of the uterus, endometriosis, so anything that's going to cause scarring or issues um, with the patency of the tubes, that's all going to be a problem. Possible male causes, uh, smoking, recreational prescription drug use, including alcohol, scrotal, hyper, scrotal hyperthermia, so increased temperature in the scrotum will cause the, the malformation of the sperm and abnormal sperma, spermatogenesis. So you're going to work up both patients for the issues that, that you uh, may find in either one. Labs and studies, so uh, semen analysis in men. For females, pelvic ultrasound, FSH, LH, TSH, progesterone and estrogen levels. Ovulation predicting tests. Hysterosalpingography and laparoscopy. The difference there, um, uh, hysterosalpingography, hysterosalpingography. Um, what that is, is they inject dye uh, through the vagina, introduce it up through the cervix and into the uterus, and then it goes up into the tubes, and they do x-rays at that point. That gives you a lot of information. It gives you a really good idea to see if the tubes are patent, if they're open, and uh, you can have conception with the tubes that are available. But it doesn't give you all the information. Uh, I would do work with one infertility doc in particular, and we do a fair amount of laparoscopy with him where we inject, where you physically go in, you insufflate the abdomen, you put the scope in, and then again, using a similar device, you inject dye up through the cervix into the uterus and hopefully out through the tubes to see their patency. And you definitely get more information from that uh, than you would just from the, uh, from the x-ray. But those are the two tests you can do to check for patency of the, of the tubes. But oftentimes you're doing the laparoscopy for that, but you're also looking for scarring. You're looking for endometriosis. You're looking for all those other things that may be causing this infertility. And then on top of that, seeing if there's anything you can do about those. Treatment. Uh, like we said in the beginning, clomiphene citrate, 50 to 100 milligrams promotes ovulation. If there is some sort of infectious process going on, obviously we're going to treat that with antibiotics. If we find an endocrine disorder, we're going to deal with that. Uh, like we said just shortly ago, uh, laparoscopic techniques, we're going to uh, lice any adhesions that we find to free up the uterus and the tubes uh, and fulguration of endometriosis. So what that means is if you find endometriosis, it's these little implants of endometrial tissue outside and inside the outside of the uterus, um, usually in the cul-de-sac or on the on the ovaries. And what you're going to do is you're going to uh, use some electric cautery to cauterize those and that will increase the patient's chances of getting pregnant. Artificial insemination is another possibility. This is introducing concentrated sperm into the uterus. And then our final step is in vitro fertilization, which is creating an embryo outside of the body using eggs and sperm and then placing that embryo into the uterus. All right, let's move on to breast disorders. So a couple different reasons people would present with breast issues. Mostly the first section of this, what we're going to talk about is people who would present with um, a binding a breast mass or having pain in their breast. So the first one is fibrocystic disease. This is the most common breast lesion by far. It includes cysts, fibrosis, and ductal epithelial hyperplasias. So fibrosis is just an increase in fibrous tissue, okay? And typically these things occur between age 30 and 50. So think slightly older women. Okay, so they are childbearing age, but on the higher end. Patients present because their breasts hurt. They're typically painful, but they might not be. But this goes up and down with the menstrual cycle. 
the masses may change in size with the menstrual cycle, and usually they are multiple masses and bilateral. You may also, you may also get some nipple just discharge. Physical exam, uh, again, you're going to find palpable masses often in both breasts. The terms they use to describe it for a physical exam is a lumpy, bumpy breast, or, or you may find rope-like masses. Labs and studies, uh, breast ultrasound may be useful, mammography, a biopsy, fine needle aspiration if you're looking at a cyst, and a gram stain, gram stain and culture if there's any discharge. Treatments, you're going to monitor them. That's going to be number one. Aspiration of the cyst may reduce the pain for, and give you some cytology to send off. Anecdotal evidence supports reduction in caffeine might improve symptoms, and a supportive bra will, will oftentimes help with the symptoms. So these are really just reassurance monitoring. A fibroadenoma is next. This is a benign breast tumor. This is a little bit younger, so I think four, it's 14 to 40 is the common, most common ages, so younger patients in the childbearing years. African Americans have an increased risk. And these are a little bit hard to tell apart from fibrocystic disease in a, in a test question or in, in real life. Um, so something just to, to try and parse apart here. Uh, physical exam is going to be a breast mass that's rubbery, movable, non-tender, and one to five centimeters in size. So things that might help you to discern the two would be things like that, the fact that it's a mobile mass, the thing that it's non-tender. That's what's going to help you the most, but it's going to be, a, it, it's a little bit difficult to, to separate these two in a test question unless you have those sort of uh, terms. Again, labs and studies very similar. Uh, mammography, breast ultrasound, biopsy, fine needle aspiration, and excision with pathology if diagnosis is necessary. So if they can't tell what it is, and that kind of goes for fibrocystic disease as well. If you can't tell what it is, the, the gold standard, the way to really find out would be just to go in and cut it out and do the pathology on it. Treatment, again, is reassurance or perhaps uh, surgical excision. Next, we have the breast carcinomas. They're the most common cancer in women, which affects about 12% of women. Lung cancer is the only cancer with a higher uh, death rates among women. So we're going to start out with a, a, a few different kinds we're going to cover right now. Um, ductal carcinoma, which includes ductal carcinoma in situ, invasive ductal carcinoma. Then we'll talk about lobular carcinomas, which includes lobular carcinoma in situ and invasive lobular carcinoma uh, cancer. And then we'll talk about Paget's disease. Then we'll move on to just two more breast issues, and then we'll finish up for today. So ductal carcinomas are 85% of breast cancers. 85%. So, that it, so these occur within the, the milk ducts, right? So these are uh, the first one is going to be ductal carcinoma in situ, which I'll hear described as DCIS. This is possibly malignant. So it's cancer cells within the, within the milk ducts. And it puts the patient at increased risk of invasive disease. Then we have invasive ductal carcinoma, which is IDC. Malignant and invasive neoplastic cells, which have broken out of the milk duct. So once you have cancer cells, when you have them in one confined area, not terrible. When you have them, when they start to break through into other tissue layers, uh, things start to get, that's when things really start to get bad. And we really have to be aggressive about treating it. Next, we have lobular carcinoma. The lobular is the gland within the breast that makes the milk. It's, you just think of it as a gland. Uh, 15, this makes up about 15% of breast cancers. The two types there, like we said before, lobular carcinoma in situ. 
This is abnormal cells within the lobule. Now, this is not really considered cancer, but it does put the patient at risk for developing cancer. So it does need to be addressed. Invasive lobular cancer, this is cancer cells which have broken out of the lobule. So just like um, ductal, I'm sorry, invasive ductal carcinoma, they've broken out of the ducts. In this case, they've broken out of the, the glands. The other one we're going to talk about right now is Paget's disease, which this is a cancer of, of the nipple and areola. And usually this is an indicator that the patient has DCIS or IDC beneath that. So this is of the skin. Paget's disease is of the skin, but it usually indicates ductal carcinoma in situ or invasive ductal car carcinoma beneath the skin. Paget's disease accounts for about 1% of breast cancers. Risk factors for breast cancer? Most cases of breast cancer don't have any risk factors. So that's something we get hung up on. In your test questions, they probably will have risk factors, right? Because they have to be able to describe it. They have to give you some information. But in practice, it's important to keep in mind um, things like the idea that although we have all of these risk factors that I'm going to cover and you need to, you need to know for your test, they don't, most patients who present with breast cancer don't have any risk factors. So just something to keep in the back of your mind. Let's cover some of the risk factors. Estrogen exposure. So advance, it will increase the risk for breast cancer. So advancing age, average age is over 60. Nulliparity, so not having children. Children gives you, will break the menstrual cycles, right? You, you get sort of a, a nine-month break from the menstrual cycle. Uh, and so that's going to be a, something that will, not having children will increase your risk for breast cancer. Advanced age at first pregnancy. And then early menarche, so less than 12, and late menopause greater than 50. So more years of having a menstrual cycle increase your risk for breast cancer. 5 to 10% of cases have genetic susceptibility with BRCA1 or BRCA2 genes. A family history of breast cancer increases or puts you at an increased risk. And Caucasians are at an increased risk for breast cancer. Why patients present? Routine screening which we'll talk more about in just a second. Finding a lump in the breast. The majority of cases are self-detected, firm, immobile, painless masses. Changes in the skin around the breast. Breast pain, nipple discharge, nipple retraction, enlargement or shrinkage of the breast. And then, obviously, a bad sign is metastatic symptoms, so if patients come in with bone pain and weight loss. Physical exam um, would be a, a mass found on breast exam. For a, a diagnosis of cancer, the physical exam is going to be the masses will be firm, poorly defined, immobile, typically non-tender, and most commonly found on the upper outer quadrant. So things like poorly defined point more towards something like cancer. Before we talked about um, a rubbery mass being something more like fibroadenoma, here we've got a firm mass. The fibroadenoma is movable. In this case, it's going to be immobile. Labs and studies. Uh, mammography we use for screening, obviously. The current recommendations from the American Cancer Society include average risk patients should be screened annually, annu annually from age 45 to 54. And then average risk patients from 55 on should be screened every other year. Now, they're also saying that uh, patients as young as 40 may opt in to get, uh, to get mammograms done. 
and patients older than 55, if they want to get them every year, that would still be an indication to, but the recommendation is every other year for patients older than 55. We can also do ultrasounds, MRIs, excisional biopsies, imaging of the metast- for metastatic disease, including CTs and PET scans. Treatment, uh, lumpec- lumpectomy, so just going in and getting the mass itself. Mastectomy, so removing the breast. Chemotherapy, radiation. And then tamoxifen is an estrogen receptor antagonist, which can be used to treat estrogen receptor positive cancers as well as uh, postmenopausal women. So that'll round out my, the, uh, as far as we're going to talk about breast cancers, um, that'll finish off that discussion. We're not going to go into a whole lot of depth about all the different um, drug treatments and different things you can do. Um, I really don't see that coming up on your exam. I would not be personally too concerned about stuff like that. I would be more concerned about trying to identify them through physical exam, knowing the screening test timeframes, uh, knowing the treatments, just generalized. I don't think we go into quite as much depth as to the very specifics. Moving on. Um, so we have three more. I was made a mistake earlier. We have three more breast issues to talk about. First one is going to be gynecomastia, which is, this is often seen in elderly men, obese men, and taller, heavier boys during puberty. So this is developing breast tissue in males. Possible causes would be endocrine issues, chronic liver disease, chronic kidney disease, uh, neoplasms, drugs, and puberty may affect this. Labs and studies, you're going to do a prolactin, which may be elevated low serum testosterone. Estradiol may be increased. You're going to want to check testosterone and estrogen, obviously. You're going to do a karyotype um, in case you come across something like Klinefelter syndrome. And then consider a biopsy if the mass is suspicious. Treatment. Typically, this is going to be self-limited. It may even clear on its own. If we treat the underlying conditions and we remove the offending agents, uh, it should it may clear up. Otherwise, there's surgical removal. i work with a plastic surgeon. We've certainly done a few of these in the years I've been here. Um, not a ton, but the surgical remove is pretty straightforward. You just go in and remove the small disc of breast tissue um, under, the, under the skin. Galactorrhea is another one I want to talk about today. This is often caused by a pituitary prolactinoma. This is milk discharge from the breast of a woman or a man and infants uh, completely unrelated to childbirth. You may also have amenorrhea, oligomenorrhea, and infertility uh, may be the reasons why the patient is presenting. Labs and studies, elevated prolactin. You want to get a beta HCG and obviously check on that. You're going to do an MRI of the pituitary and hypothalamus because, again, this is often caused by a pituitary prolactinoma. Treatment, reassurance. If the patient has had children or if prolactin levels are normal, reassure them this should clear up. If prolactin is elevated, um, you may have to go ahead and do something about this. So you may have to deal with the prolactinoma. And then dopamine agonists may lower prolactin. So um, something to look into are prescribing the patient dopamine agonists. Our last topic for today is going to be mastitis and breast abscesses. Uh, this is most commonly occurs within three months of delivery in women, in women who are nursing. Patients present with engorged breasts, sore or cracked nipples, warm, tender uh, red breasts, and erythema. I guess that's the same as red breasts. Uh, labs and studies, culture of the nipple discharge will often produce staph aureus. A treatment, antibiotic therapy, augmentin and dicloxacillin pop up to the top of the list. Mechanical emptying of the breast is encouraged, so you're going to continue breastfeeding. This will actually help. And abscesses are going to be needed to be, you know, they recommend draining with a needle 
uh, just in, after years of being in surgery, um, if at all possible, IND is the way to go. You need to get the the pressure off. That's what really helps clear these up and, and get in there and get uh, get that opened up. That really helps a lot, that and the antibiotics. But one or the other uh, tends to not be enough. But f- those would be the answers for, for us as far as our tests go. Okay, so that wraps up OBGYN. We finished up talking about contraception, infertility, and then breast issues. How you plan. Um, something we've been talking, we talk about a lot on this show. I strongly recommend that you plan out when and where you're going to be doing your studying. Uh, but the part I want to talk about a little bit today is making sure, I, I've talked about this before, but I don't think it's been, I've done it in a while. I want you to be sure to let those around you know your plans. And what I mean by that is, let's say you sit down and on Sunday you decide to make your plans. So you decide, all right, on Monday night, I'm going to study from 8 to 10. And then on Tuesday, I'm going to get up early and study from 5 to 7. And Wednesday, I'm not going to study at all. But Thursday, I'm, I know my classes end early, so I'm going to stay at school from 3 to 6. Or my surgeries schedule's light on Thursday. So I may get out early and do some studying then and then come home. My point is, you. I strongly encourage you to lay all that out. But what I want to talk about today is I strongly encourage you to share that information with those around you, the people who are going to be interrupting you, the people who need to get hold of you, whether those be your children or those be your roommates or your other, uh, the students in your class. You need to let those people know what you're doing so that they don't interrupt you, so that they give you the time that you need, so that everybody's on the same page. I find it incredibly frustrating when I sit down and I make plans about, let's just say, uh, what I'm going to do for the weekend, the, the jobs I have to get done. I've got to, I had to fix the lawnmower this weekend. I had to mow the grass. I had a couple other things I had to take care of. And my wife comes home and, and on Saturday morning and she starts in uh, with a project we've been talking about doing. And we both kind of get frustrated because neither of the things that we want to do, actually hers, I think, as it turned was was getting the stuff down from the attic because it's the fall and getting the stuff ready for the kids and going through all their clothes. Well, we both had things that we needed to get done and we both probably could have gotten them done had we communicated more clearly and had each other help us. So what I'm saying is if you communicate to your spouse, to your kids, to your roommates, when you need quiet time, when you need to be studying, from this hour to this hour, I am unavailable. I'm going to be studying. Please set that time aside. If you have any questions for me, anything you need help with during that time, please wait. And when I'm done, I will come help you. And and be very clear. These are the times so that they know when they can get help from you, when they can get their questions answered, when they can get their problems solved. You're not saying that you're not available. You're just saying between these times, you need to get some real work done. I find time and time again, especially when I talk to uh, people with kids, they, they struggle to find that time. They struggle to find time when they can really focus and study. I think as long as you're very clear about your ideas and what, what you need to get done and when you're going to be doing it, and you're honest, I think most people are extremely understanding, even my, even my kids who tend to be, uh, need answers immediately, will find ways to wait a little bit. If you're, uh, if you're open to them and you explain to them that when you're done, you will have time for them and you actually follow up and do that. So anyway, that's my tip for today. Uh, communicate your plans with those around you. It'll make it so much easier for all of you involved to do a better job and get your stuff done. Be much less frustrating for you, your family, your roommates, whatever. Uh, during this process. All right, so let's wrap up with some questions. Over-the-counter, I keep saying that because I'm looking at OCPs. 
Oh, it's not over the counter. It's oral contraception increases a woman's risk for DVT, especially when combined with what other risk factor? Especially when combined with what other activity? I'm not sure I should, how I should have worded that. And the answer is smoking. Lumpy, bumpy breasts or rope-like masses should make you think of what diagnosis? Lumpy, bumpy breasts or rope-like breast mass, breast mass should make you think of what diagnosis? Fibrocystic changes. What diagnosis are you looking for if you order a karyotype on a patient with gynecomastia? What diagnosis are you looking for if you order a karyotype on a patient with gynecomastia? Kleinfelter syndrome. A prolactinoma may be the cause of what diagnosis that we discussed earlier today? A prolactinoma may be the cause of what diagnosis that we just got done talking about? Galacteria. At what age do we begin screening for breast cancer every two years with mammograms in average risk women? When do we start doing every other year? When do we get away from doing every year? And the answer is at age 55. Great. So again, that wraps up OBGYN. Fantastic. Um, I don't even, I haven't even decided what we're going to move on to yet. I'll have to think it over. <laughs> I'm going to get started on that pretty soon, um, like tomorrow or the next day. So I'll spend some time thinking about that. Um, if you have ideas, you want to email me and shoot me an email as to what you'd want to hear about next. That may or may not influence my decision based on how soon uh, you do this. This is going to be released on October 18th um, of 2016. So depending on how soon you send those in, it, like I said, it may or may not influence what I move into next. But uh, yeah, we'll definitely move on to something one way or the other. To those of you taking your exam between now and then, good luck to you. I know Dawn's going to be taking hers actually when the day that this is released. Um, so hopefully you're not listening to this anymore and you're just off taking your test. So good luck to you on that. Thanks to those of you who have been leaving iTunes reviews. I really do appreciate it. They absolutely uh, help to boost my ego to help me continue to produce the show. So please keep those up. I really do appreciate that. Any questions, certainly email me, bwall at physicianassistantexamrecue.com. Go check out the website. And until then, until next time, uh, take care and good luck.